Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. I am Scott Challoner, and once again, I will be exploring a new perspective on leadership, joined each week by a different CEO, CFO, director, president, government minister, and one day, I hope, even the health secretary, whose policies are once more at the centre of debate after the government ruled that mask wearing will become compulsory for shops in England from the 24th of July. Good news, of course, if you're a fan of Halloween and the occasional masquerade ball. The aim in these interviews, however, is to discover who these people are, the people who get up each morning and strive to make this country work. We discuss everything from that eureka moment of creativity to triumphing in the face of adversity, and of course the innovation and success that makes it all worthwhile in the end. We also get their take on the current economic and political landscape here in the UK. We'll, of course, be hearing from Lord Blunkett, the former Labour Education Secretary and current chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland later on in the show. But first and foremost, I'm delighted to be joined by Richard Reid, the managing director of smart home installation firm Aonix, based in Watford, Hertfordshire. Established in 2012 and working with both individuals and larger housing providers, Aonix, in a few short words, aims to simplify and centralise various home systems, linking them together to be controlled in one place. But rather than hear me talking about all that, I do think it's better that we hear from the man himself. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome Richard Reid onto the show. Richard, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on today's programme. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure having you on board with us, Richard. Now, um, we're here, of course, to talk about leadership and really bring that into focus. And I think it's fair to say that this generation of leaders, both politically and in business, is facing one of the greatest challenges of its time in the shape of the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, you're a smart home installation firm in Watford with almost 30 employees. Do, of course, correct me if I'm wrong on that. Um, How have you sort of found it navigating this last few weeks and months and the wake of the challenges the pandemic has brought about, Richard? Uh, first of all, we've got actually we, we've we've gone up to thirty five uh, employees, mm. um, and it's it's been challenging. It, it really has. It's um, obviously from the beginning of the year up until March, it, it was a gradual uh, um, process in terms of things beginning to close down. We worked very much within the building sector, so a, a lot of sites we were working on uh, were, uh, have remained open throughout. The project we the challenges we had was more from how we're able to to send our own team into various different projects and keeping them safe. So we, what we ultimately did, um, I think, along the lines of a lot of people, is we 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 stood down operations for a temporary period, which ended up, I think, being a couple of months. Um, our office crew, some were furloughed. Um, the, the the people that weren't followed worked from home, um, which we're still doing. Our team are back out in the field, but the rest of the, uh, but uh, everyone else is working from home. Um, I think the biggest challenge was how do we wonder how do we temporarily stand down, and then two, how do we then restart operations from where we left off? Um, because every project was at a different phase, and it meant that you know, some some projects started off quicker, some started off slower. When, when things started to come back, and it was just just fully just fitting ourselves back into that process, but we did it. It was um, one thing we've we've tried to do. Uh, I've tried to do as a company is make sure that lines of communication are always open mm. um, up throughout the company. So it doesn't matter where you sit in terms of what your 
position is or um, what you do on a day-to-day basis. Everyone has access to everyone. And we've actually used Microsoft Teams, if I'm allowed to say that, so effectively um, for us. It's made such a difference because people can talk to everyone at any different, at any given time. And the ability for people to keep in communication with each other, um, we found it was a very, very powerful tool. So it's challenging, yes. Um, impossible, no. And what do you think the long-term effect of the pandemic will be on your industry? I, I think as long as, from the different sectors that we sit, we, we sit across a couple of different sectors, I think as long as there is building going on, uh, I think there will always be a, a need for what we do. Uh, we, we as, as much as doing the home automation, uh, installations and smart home, we also um, are quite heavily involved in ICT, so the building infrastructure of um, all of the information technology. So that would be door entry, access control, CCTV, landlords network, fiber aerial networks. We install the backbone. So every every building that goes up use, utilizes all of those products. So uh, I think as long as um, these buildings go on, there will always be a need for it. It will mean people have to change how they operate. Mm. I think people will run leaner. I think people will run smarter as time goes on. But again, I, I'm, I'm looking at the positive, and that is that you know certainly now the government has said they're going to build their way out of it. From our point, our perspective, that hopefully will be, will be good news. Mm. It's certainly in the uh, the project speed um, outlined by Boris Johnson just a couple of weeks ago that the government is planning to build, build, build. That's absolutely right. And you also alluded to something as well, really important there, Richard, that some features of this lockdown period, particularly with regard to working practices, could well become permanent ways that business functions in the uh, the UK. Um, because with regards to sustainability, there's the debate about whether people do need to continue travelling into office environments. Do you think there's really a place for that conventional office workplace in the workplace of the future. I, my, my personal view is that the the large offices, large companies, sorry, with large offices and large staff numbers, will, will, will gradually go. I think serviced office industry will, will really benefit from this. I think that a lot of people will will, will want to work from home. They've seen the, the benefit of working from home. I think different technologies are available now to to allow people to monitor what people do. Uh, without being too, uh, without infringing too much on their privacy. Um, so I think I, I can talk for ourselves, and I, I can say that personally, I've never been busier than uh, than I have because I am in one place at one time, and the, you know the amount of conversations and meetings that take place online every day are, you know, they just they just, they just grow and grow. Mm. And I think what's happened is, I think what will happen is people's work life balance. Will, will will change. So a lot of people I've spoken to that work for larger companies are saying they'll work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and have Monday and Friday working from home. It gives them, it gives them a perceived longer weekend, but they're at home, they're working still. And I think if you take out someone's journey into work, if you take out someone's journey return journey, you know, it, it's, it, you know, it gives them an extra couple of hours a day whether they decide to work it or not. They're there. They're good to go. They're not going to have to worry about being, being delayed. And you're right in terms of sustainability. If there's less traffic on the road, there's less pollution on the road in, in, in the, um, in the air, there's, you know, there's less strain on the underground, on the overground. So I think what, what will happen pretty much maybe as what happened after the financial crisis, loads of new businesses were spawned after that came about Uber as an example. You know, it didn't exist before then, but, but after the financial crisis, there was a large amount 
of online businesses. And I think that's what will happen again now. I don't necessarily, I couldn't tell you what they're going to be, but things, think companies will, will spawn out of this. But, you know, people, people, people will work from home more. There'll be, they'll have, it'll be much simpler to do it. Everyone's been forced to do it. And they've learned, I think, I, I haven't spoken to anyone that's found it difficult to do it. So I would say it's, it's, if you take the positive out of what's happened uh, amongst the tragedy is that working practices will change. People's life balances maybe will change. And, you know, the, 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 the planet itself might benefit from it. Mm. It's probably a bit dramatic, but I think, you know, it is a way forward. And this, I think, is incredibly important in the context of the current climate because all of this has really thrust the importance of this back into the limelight. Just how important do you feel that mental health and well-being is in leadership, both in terms of safeguarding your own and also looking after that of your colleagues? Critical. It's um, it's, it's, it's one thing I found, actually, is it's, it's quite defining the, the, the people that have actually got stronger through this and the people that have actually suffered from it. And that obviously depends on, uh, on obviously the, the type of person and their personality. But it, it, mental health is is so so important within um, any business, and making sure that you uh, cater and allow and and have time for people that are struggling. You know, it's it's something personally I take to heart, and something I, I you know I with our own team, you know, I'm I'm really keen to to make sure that everyone is, you know, everyone's feeling as they should do and that they're getting the help that they need, which is one of the reasons why we, as a company, we do uh, twice daily uh, teams meetings so mm-hmm. that key members of staff and anyone who wants to join are able to talk to each other during the course of the day. It just means that people know that everyone else is there. They can, they can have a conversation, air their views, or they can talk to me separately, um, which I've had various conversations with people. Because they've they've had they've had um, they felt pressure where maybe they wouldn't have felt it before. Um, you know, working at home, the, the downside of working at home, you know, as we were saying a minute ago, where you have maybe you know eight nine calls a day, that, yeah. that's that's quite a, quite a bit of pressure, and you know you don't often get a chance to move. So you know, for for us, we don't start the day till ten, and the last call that we have is around four four thirty. So people's time to themselves is more they have more time to themselves and with regards to the leadership that's been seen from the government during this uh, period just shifting focus slightly um there's been some unprecedented measures that have come into uh, force of course the uh, the job retention scheme which has seen millions of uk workers furloughed of course small business loans um, as well but do you think that their leadership has been effective during this time, particularly given the amount of debate over the clarity of safety guidelines throughout in terms of those businesses that have continued to operate and those that are going to be opening again over the course of the next few weeks and months? I, I would say this. I think the government was damned if they did and damned if they didn't. It's, you know, we've, we're going through something that last reared its head 100 years ago. And 100 years ago, the world was a different place we didn't have the technical technological advancements we've got today. Um, and it's very, very easy for people to be armchair critics um, without actually being put in the position of having all the facts at hand, which a lot of the journalists and um, critics have, have not had. So I would say, look, in, in, with, with the, um, with the hand they've been dealt, I think they've done really, really well. You mentioned, you know, about the the the, uh, the schemes to help people. I mean, it, it, you're right; it's unprecedented. 
I mean, we've probably got the most socialist conservative government that's ever existed, mm. but they've done it because they want to make sure that the UK stays afloat. They, they've invested back into the economy, well, as much as they can, back into the people that, that have funded the economy for so long. They've given back, which is, you know, which is reassuring. And that, I believe and I hope, will allow in time the economy to turn around. But to, to answer your question, I think they've done as best as they could do. I certainly, I certainly wouldn't stand here and sit and criticize because how can you? You know, we, 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 you know, we're 16, 15, 16 weeks into this now. And, you know, we're, the numbers are coming down. The, the deaths are coming down. Yes, there are going to be local spikes. But as the government says, you know, you've got, to, you've got to rely on people's common sense. You know, if people can understand that because, you know, the numbers are dropping down, it doesn't mean COVID's gone away. It just means the numbers have dropped. Personally, I'm not having to shield, so I, I can't go out until properly until the first of August. First mm. of August doesn't mean COVID disappeared; it just means that I, c- I can actually leave my house properly and go somewhere. But I still have to wear gloves, still have to wear face masks. You know, so it's common sense. You know, if, if people can use their common sense, um, I think things will be fine. And would you say that? there's anything that managing this pandemic from a business point of view has taught you as an individual in a leadership position? Yeah. One of, one of my favorite sayings that, that is, is a, it is a, a military saying is revise, adapt, overcome. Okay. And that has never, ever been more relevant than it is now because everyone's had to revise and adapt to how they go about their business and overcome, um, uh, you know, a, a, a global, um, reversal of, of, of the economy and you, how, you know, how do you do that? So you, you have to look at how your business runs. You have to be able to say, stand back and think to, myself, think to yourself, okay, we ran a certain way before. This is not going to be how we can run in the short term and maybe indefinitely. So how do we adjust ourselves? What do we need to do? Asking your team members, you know, can you, what are your views? How do you see the future going? And then pulling together opinions, being able to, admit when you're doing something that is wrong uh, and listen to others. There's all things that I feel that you would normally want to do on a day-to-day basis, but become more and more important when faced with adversity. You know, I really like that response, Richard. I think you're absolutely right in the sense that people do bring the best out in themselves during times of adversity. And in fact, the whole reason I asked that initial question is because as leaders, I feel personally that one is never a finished article. We're always still learning. We're still adapting. We're still improving when we have to. And in some ways, I don't think it's really possible to become an effective employee, an effective leader without suffering setbacks, having to embrace learning curves and use that to adapt and improve. Is that something that you would certainly agree with? 100%. I mean, everyone goes through uh, their life. No one, no one comes out of life unscathed. It's not a straight line. It's, it, 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 your life's like a river. It, 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 it twists and turns and you have to be able to go with it. If you don't, you'll, you'll just beat yourself. So, I mean, personally, I had cancer five years ago, took the wind out of my sails. It, you know, it really left, it left me in a really, really bad position for a long time. But you, you, you take, you, my view was at the time, well, what do I do? Do I, do I, do I lay down and die or do I get back on my feet and, and fight through it, which is what I did, you know, and it, it, my family affected, but, you, you, you know, that to me became, um, you know, something that I, I you know, out of, again, out of tragedies, I took the positive out of it because it made, it made me stronger as, as an individual. It made me appreciate and be grateful for every day that I can get out of bed and just 
carry on my life, be able to see my kids and my wife. These are things that were really important in my personal life, and I've adopted that even more so into my into my business life. And I've uh, you know I've I've I've, in, I've invested all of me into into our business to make sure that everyone who works for us gets you know has 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 that oh, well, I'd like to think a benefit from me that, that where I can I can, um, I can be there for them. It's um, yeah, adversity is, is, is what shapes a human being. Mm. You know, it shapes you one of two ways. It either makes you stronger or it's going to, it's going to break you. You know, are you a diamond or are you, are you glass? Diamonds are made under pressure, whereas glass, cra- uh, glass cracks under it. You know, and that's, that's maybe a bit of a blunt statement, but it's, it, it's, it's life and you have to, you have to either rise up to it or, or let it roll over you. I think that's exactly right. I think those that have certainly triumphed in adversity during this time are certainly going to come out of the other side stronger and in leadership roles now. We do need diamonds as opposed to glass figures. That's correct. Um, If we actually consider the word leader for a moment, just take that aside. We talked an awful lot about leadership, but how would you actually define the word leader, Richard? What is a leader and what ought they be? What is a leader? In my mind, is someone that is able to bring people together. It's someone that's able to direct. It's someone that's able to oversee. It's someone that's able to, to stand in front and behind um, uh, their, their team members, You know, allowing them to tell you when you're wrong and listening and understanding and agreeing with that and letting, listening to their opinion, but also making sure your opinion is known when you know what you're saying is correct. It is, um, it's being there for people. It's not being there for people as in when that is, that, that either of those scenarios are necessary. It's being understanding. It's being able to listen. It's being able to learn and it's being able to tell all of these things I think are, are, are what goes into making, um, someone, um, a leader, someone who's got high morals, someone who knows the difference between right and wrong. Um, and someone who's black and white, you know, if you were, you know, if you're very woolly and gray, working in gray all the time, then confusion does set in. What are you telling your people? What are you telling your team members? You know, people need to understand clearly and concisely within the parameters of what they do, what they're doing. And when you're an employee in a business, I suppose it's only natural at times such as this, especially that you look up to your leaders for inspiration and direction. You look up to executives, you look up to managers, but in your position, for example, where there is nobody above you and you are the one at the helm, where do you look for that inspiration as and when you need it? What does sort of inspire you? My team members, because every, every one of them is different in, 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 in most ways. They're all different personalities. They, um, that they, they have, it's watching them grow as individuals, uh, and watching them come back and say, why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? Being part of it. Um, that, that's, that, that I draw a lot of inspiration from. Uh, some, there is, um, uh, there's a, I don't know if I'm allowed to mention it, but there's a, a, a book that I read, uh, called Extreme Ownership, which is written by two ex Navy SEALs. And it was really interesting. It was how they took, um, the, what they learned as a Navy SEALs experiences they went through and then, um, implemented that in business, uh, for different businesses. And I, I find that really, really interesting because if people can learn how to, um, react under fire, um, and use that in business, then they, they can't be any better learning. So th- those, those are probably the two areas I would, I, I would draw inspiration from my own team and, um, 
people like that that have lived the world, been lived in the world, experienced proper hardship and survived it. Mm, because experience as well as, of course, mentorship is a huge teacher, isn't it? That's um, incredibly important yeah. to remember. You have to go out, you have to go and um, sort of have that experience. Um, speaking of um, experience, Richard, if we just sort of backtrack him a little bit too earlier on in your career, um, can you actually pinpoint that sort of eureka moment, if you will, which made you really think that I've got enough experience here and going into business, leading a team, that's the way forward for me? I, I used to, um, when I started out, I had a, uh, a spotty start to to, um, to work. I never went to university, and I went straight away working um, for some commercial agents, and didn't quite get it. I, I, I just went out and got a job. Didn't think anything more of it, um, and never really enjoyed it. And then I, I, I moved around a lot until I found something I actually enjoyed doing that I understood, um, and that was selling unbelievably mobile phones when they first started out and it was I just realized to use an expression from my father-in-law how to make one and one three just how to make money by selling them and how how to um where where to maximize what we're able to do um and I was put in charge of a a small team to run and when I as it was it wasn't something I went for it was just someone said to me we want you to do this so I did, and it was, I think, at that point, understanding however immature I was at the time and how many, many mistakes I made, and there were plenty, but it, I, I, I liked it. I liked being in that position. I felt comfortable in it. I think that was a point that I, at that point, I decided, right, I can do this myself. And, I, you know, there's an expression, you know, you take to, takes a, um, to make an omelet, you've got to break a few eggs. Mm. I broke loads. But, you know, and I still continue to, you know, like just to mention what you said earlier, you know, you know, we, we are never a finished article. We are always learning. And I, I try and go through my life on record and picking things up from people that I feel are valuable um, and lessons that are valuable so that I, I can um, try and better myself as, as a person. Um, but I think that would be my eureka moment that when, when I was in that position, that I was, I was put in a position where I, I actually enjoyed and grew into it. And this might seem a little bit of a mean question, but um, going back to that point, um, if you could go back that amount of time armed with all of the experience that you have now and address the younger version of yourself, is there anything that you would tell him to do differently? No, because I wouldn't have the experience I have today. Any mistake I've made, I I don't regret them. Um, People around me might, (laughs) my wife might, but no, I don't because it's, you can't learn without you cannot learn without making a mistake. I mean, one of the things I'm keen to stress with our team is that you know go and do what you need to do. Go and make a mistake. Don't worry about falling because I'll I'll catch you. Just don't ever repeat it. And you know it's given and that gives people the freedom to go and do what they're going to do because mm. people we're all human beings. We're all going to make mistakes. You know, inadvertently, carelessly, whatever it is, we're all going to make mistakes. So I'd rather someone learn from them than someone being constantly told what to do, be tied, be on, on a very rigid track and not be able to think outside the box. That, 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 that's, that's my, that's a personal view, but uh, I, I, I hope it doesn't sound arrogant, but I wouldn't change a thing. Mm. I can certainly see where you're coming from there, Richard, because there's a lot of merit in that approach of giving people the independence to go out of their own comfort zones, push the boundaries, try things for themselves, and then learn from the mistakes that they do make because it's counterproductive, on the other hand, just being there constantly over their shoulder, telling them what to do, because with that, they're never going to really develop, are they? Correct. Correct. 
and also you find out what people are like. And there are some people that just can't cut it, that, that, that continue to make mistakes. And then, and then you find out quick enough that they're just not, that it's not for you. And we've over a period of a period of years, we have um, refined our team so that it only ever gets stronger and stronger. Which is which benefits it's not not just from my point of view, but it benefits everyone. Exactly right. And um, thinking of, um, of course, just how hectic the world of running a business can actually be in any context, let alone at a time such as this. And we've already talked about mental health, uh, Richard, but when you do need to sort of just switch off as somebody running a business, how easy do you find it just to do that and relax when you need to? My, 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 uh, my saving grace has always been boxing. I, I, I love Exercise and boxing is probably one of the best exercises you can do. Um, I'm I'm not about to get in a ring. I'm no um, I'm no professional by any stretch, but I, I enjoy the, the the actual physical side of it, and that that to me is, is is my release. That other exercise I do during the week that 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 is more than enough for me to, to um, lighten the load, should we say? Because I think. People, of course, can really get caught up in the uh, the sort of the everyday sort of hectic world of running a business. And sometimes you can kind of forget that sometimes even at the top of the tree, you do need to sort of take a little bit of time to yourself every so often, don't you? And it's good to sort of have that release. And anybody, to anyone listening into this who's starting out in business or at least hoping to, I think that's one of the best pieces of advice you can give as well, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. You've got to have some time for yourself. Look, I, I, I find... My, my, my personally, my mind is a lot clearer when I've exercised because I've, I've just got rid of whatever I've been through the day before or that day. It, my mind is clear. At that point, I, I, if your mind is clear, things pop in your head that you would maybe not necessarily think about. And then you, you, all of a sudden, you might just brainstorm something. I think, you know, that's a really good idea. I'm going to do that. And that's that's, form of, that's clarity. So what do you get? You get clear mind, you get a fit body, and you get... Um, you're maintaining a way of life that is healthy and you know and even putting all of that aside you know you mentioned you know mental health uh, I, I think this is so key you know that the, the the how you feel after you train is oh, we're going a bit off topic here but how you feel after you train mm. is so good that I think if people sometimes some people took exercise more seriously and what in whatever form it was swimming running tennis golf whatever whatever it was the, the, it's the time that they can switch off. It's an hour or two hours where they're not actually thinking about what's bothering them. And then one thing I, I, I'm keen to tell our team is that when things do get hard, stop what you're doing, go out, go for a walk, go and clear your head, take a step back, and then relook at it later on. Because when your mind is, when you keep going at something and you can't get it done, you're never going to get it done. You're going to end up doing the same thing over and over again. So you stop and clear your head. And exercise is great for that. And sort of similarly to that, um, we talk about, of course, um, sort of reiterating the importance of mental health, taking a step back sometimes for those people who are starting out as employees, starting out as business leaders. But what other advice would you give to a young person who was looking to start their first day in a leadership role? Be determined, be gritty, and, and know what you need to do. Accept the advice of others. Listen to what other people tell you. You don't know everything. No one does. And accept the fact that even as a leader, you're going to make mistakes. Accept who you are, okay? Accept where your limitations are. Accept where your accept where your strengths are. One one thing I learned early on is that you, you work to your strengths and you employ to your weakness, okay? Because no no one knows everything. No one can do everything. It's why in government you have 
a prime minister or a president, and then you have ministers around for different areas because they will oversee different parts of the UK economy and so on and so forth. And then the prime minister or president will have reporting that will then allow to have conversations take place, things get discussed, things get agreed, rightly or wrongly. And that you need in business as well. You need to be able to have, you know, as, as, as your business grows, you need to have the right management team beneath you to allow you to grow the business. The management team is what will take over when you get to a point where you need to get, you need to then move up the chain and take it further. You can't be chief cook and bottle washer all the time. You know, you, uh, you, you need to have a business plan. You need to say, right, I want to be here in, in a year, in three years and in five years. You may not hit it, but you need to have something to aim for so that you know the sort of milestones that you're going to be hitting along the way that will help you get to where you want to get to. And I think most of all is get out every day and just say to yourself, I'm going to be successful. Money is, is a byproduct of success. Just be the success. Be the best person you can be. Go at it. Smash it. Do whatever it is you need to do. But just listen as well. And thinking now about the uh, the future, I think it only serves that we discuss that, Richard, having reflected an awful lot on the past today. Um, over the next 12 to 18 months, it's going to be an incredibly challenging time for business adjusting to the uh, the new normal of the COVID-19 situation, of course. But also raging away in the background are the Brexit trade negotiations. We're still no closer to knowing whether we will have a deal in place with the European Union by the end of the year. So with all of that in mind, what do you envision being on the horizon for yourself and for a and what do you really hope to achieve over the next 12 to 18 months as a business? I think next the next 12 months, so from January next year onwards, I think will be a very very challenging year because of the, the points you've just raised. Um, there could be a second, third spike even with COVID. Um, Brexit negotiations, you know, you need to look at what you read in the, in the, uh, in, in the, in the news and read between the lines because you've got some people saying we're going to come out with no deal. Some people saying, yeah, deal might be possible. It's very difficult. It is very uncertain. So you need to plan. I think as a business, you need to plan for the worst um, and, and, and move around it. Uh, from our point of view, because we are in the building sector, as long as building is still going on, um, we just need to make sure that we are visible to whoever is, is doing the building so that we can, we can um, continue to, um, to, to, to grow. Uh, and to continue to win business. That, I think that is, is the most important thing. Uh, and, and just being mindful of what's going on in the background, you know, making sure your your reserves and your business are strong enough to be able to tie you through um, if you get a couple of two, three, four, five lead months. Um, making sure that your staff are working optimal, optimally, making sure you're not running too fat or too lean in terms of the amount of staff that you have. Um, I think it just, it, it, it's just a, a, it, something we've done with what's going on now is a top to bottom look at the business and saying, right, what do we do right? What do we do wrong? And what do we need to change to, to, to make us that much more flexible? Certainly plenty to get your teeth into over the course of the year, the next year then, Richard, I think it's fair to say. Most definitely. <laughs> and, you know, given how informative it's been having you come onto the programme to discuss leadership with us and also your experience of uh, this crisis thus far and your future plans, I actually think it would be fantastic to catch up and have you back on the show with us at some point in the next year, just to see at that point how things are shaping up, see where we are as a country and as a society at that point. And hopefully there'll be some real positive news to share. I would absolutely love that, and yes, I, I sincerely hope so. That's that's what um, that's what we're aiming for. So yes, definitely.
Thank you. Of course, there are a great many variables, so it's all well and good speculating at this point, but it's another thing entirely, of course, reconvening once um, we know what's happened and we can assess where we are. Um, Richard, I must say, it's been a real, real pleasure having you join us on the uh, the show today. And most importantly, until we do speak again in future, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on. That's pretty cool. May I just say one thing, just to finish off? Oh, okay. of course, yes. When I was um, going through treatment, I was, uh, you, you scanned, you they take your blood tests, uh, your blood tests, every, you, they, you know exactly where you are at every given stage. And when I came out of that, I knew what, my, what my, the health was of my body. I knew where I was. I knew what I did and didn't have. Okay, And we're now in the same position with business. We know we're about to go through Brexit. We now know the effects of COVID. So to, to a degree, we're actually in a slightly better position because we do know what's going on as opposed to being in the dark and something coming out of nowhere as COVID did. So, so if you can, if you can accept what is going on, accept the changes that are about to happen, you will get through it. And I think that's one of the soundest pieces of advice that anybody tuning into this can take away. And also a final message for those listeners uh, listening from me. Please do continue to be sensible, look after yourselves, look after others and stay safe because it really, really does make a tangible difference in saving lives during this time. I was speaking today to Richard Reed, Managing Director of Aonix. I hope you all enjoyed the interview and, of course, learning more about how the whole team at the Aonix business is continuing to raise standards even throughout this most challenging time. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State and Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most renowned politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in the cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. All of that is, of course, coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time 
and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods. 
including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. 
those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months 
when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond, we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about 
proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? 
I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, have to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. 
Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up 
in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. As always, it has been a pleasure listening to and learning from our guests. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner, and I hope that you all enjoyed listening. Until next time, I'll be back in the newly reopened Westminster Arms and raising a socially distanced glass to raising standards. Remember, although we are seeing things slowly returning to normal, do continue to be sensible. Look after yourselves and others, because it really does make a huge difference in keeping people safe and saving lives. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can find every episode on iTunes, YouTube and Spotify. The views expressed by each guest in the podcast are their own. They do not represent the opinions of the Parliamentary Review, Westminster Publications, Lord Pickles, Lord Blunkett, David Curry or any other guest on the podcast. If you'd like to know more about the Parliamentary Review, please visit www.theparliamentaryreview.co.uk.